0: Hello and welcome to Deepwater Podcast. I'm Karsten Mullen. On May 21st, 2020, I saw a tweet that really sparked a lot of interest for me. It made me want to take a look at the current events of America and journalism, the news, kind of how we perceive the news, how we hear the news, really how we consume it. And I started writing this episode thinking about it, and when I'm recording it, it kind of seems right now like America is on fire, when in the course of the riots that are happening all across the nation in response to an absolutely horrendous crime that we all agree is wrong. And it's just very interesting to see the news coverage. And I don't want to make a commentary or you know social commentary or political commentary on any of the events. We can all agree that human life is valuable and. The things that happen are completely atrocious, but what I really noticed was the news, the coverage of the events, especially in relationship to the truth, and it's so hard to know what is true, and the chances are you have probably asked, okay, but what really happened? What is the truth here? So, if you'll go with me, what I really want to do is take a minute to look at news journalism in America in 2020. Look at its history. Look how we're partaking in it. Look how we're perceiving it. Really look how we're consuming it and living out the news. I want to look at not what the news is saying, but what the news says about us. So what is the news? It's literally short for newly received or noteworthy information. It applies to the most minuscule details on a personal level, all the way up to a global level. It's as simple as, hey, mom and dad, did you hear that our five-month-old is crawling? And it's just as much news as, hey, mom and dad, did you hear about the elections in Kenya? Both are news. You see, traditional news journalism is what's considered to be widely relevant for a community. Journalism is really just the process of telling you what happened, but now... Social media is our megaphone. It's the way news really spreads. Of course, this is an extreme oversimplification. Journalists should be responsible to start with reporting the facts. Commentary is also important, but it's different than the news. We have to understand what an opinion editorial is, where bias comes in, how it plays a factor in there. And what we see now is the blending of the two like never before. A free, uncensored press is absolutely vital for our democracy. I won't spend a whole lot of time explaining the First Amendment or why why we need it, but here's just a short quote from Thomas Jefferson. An educated citizenry is a vital requisite for our survival as a free people, end quote. Not only is it our First Amendment right, it's an absolute necessity. Once upon a time, it was really a select industry that really decided what was newsworthy. They also decided what was media, what was movies, music, producing TV shows, everything like that. If you want to make a TV show, you are aiming for the broadest possible appeal while producing it. Now with the internet, content does not have to be nearly so broad. You can have a very specific niche, and you can thrive right there. So you have access to all these people who might be interested in a very unique thing that you want to talk about. You can make a podcast for others that simply watches a hit cult TV show and commentates on the TV series for episodes that have already aired and happened for years out. It's how I can produce a podcast right here with just laptop and Wi-Fi. It's open source, which is honestly amazing. Everyone has a video camera in their pocket right now. They can go live in two taps. They can become an instant news source. Again, this technology is amazing. But now social media determines what it considers important, which may not always be what journalists believe to be important. The rise of smartphones and The really oversized influence of Facebook on media distribution, the news is now just commentary on what some people capture and other people share. No journalists required. So modern news's greatest strength is that anyone can make and report the news. Its greatest weakness, anyone can make and report the news. Just think back how you probably heard about the unfortunate police brutality murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. Most likely what you saw first was the cell phone video. You might have seen it on a cable news channel, but they were probably playing the actual cell phone footage. You probably saw it on Facebook, Twitter, all the subsequent riots where you see most of the videos taken on the street, all on your smartphones. To talk about our history of how we consume and process the news, we need to go back. Back 71 years ago to 1949. America is blossoming. After many hard years of the Great Depression and World War II, post-war prosperity is starting to get underway. All types of companies are making cars, TVs, other goods, Jump-started the American Consumer Society. The cars got bigger, the TVs got bigger. 6.2 million new cars sold in the U.S. and nearly 10 million TV sets mentor American homes. A new type of TV programming appears. We call it soap operas. It's named after the soap manufacturers that sponsor it in an effort to catch the stay-at-home moms. The NBA was founded. NATO forms. China becomes communist, Russia has the bomb, but capitalism was going to save a world desperate for peace. Enter the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, an institution that grants license for companies to broadcast, at that time, over radio and eventually TV. It introduces the Fairness Doctrine, a mandate for television news programs but we'll come back to that later. TVs were going to nearly every home. More and more was competing with print news and radio. In the 1950s, TV was the rising star. The importance of TV was cemented by the 1960 presidential debate between JFK and Richard M. Nixon.
1: I think Mr. Nixon is an effective leader of his party. I hope he would grant me the same. The question before us is, which point of view... And which party do we want to leave the United States? Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. The next question to Vice President Nixon from Mr.
2: Van Oker.
0: The importance of television was not lost on the younger JFK. He seized the opportunity, took it seriously, and turned around his entire campaign after the first presidential debate. Nixon did not take it seriously enough. He had recently been in the hospital and he came out looking sickly, pale, underweight, tired. He insisted on campaigning up to a few hours right before the debate started. Unofficially, he had banged his knee on a car door coming into the event and was in extreme pain for the entire set. He refused to wear any makeup for the first debate. His drab, dreary suit blended in perfectly with the dark TV set. Remember, this isn't black and white TV. It made him look like a floating head. It was in stark contrast to young Kennedy. He looked healthy, tanned, resilient, calm, relaxed, and ready to go. Right after the debate, Nixon's mother supposedly called him and asked him if he was sick. But 60 million viewers tuned in for that debate. There was a much smaller audience that listened to it on a radio. When they were polled afterwards, listeners who were listening on the radio, who were just listening to the words, they thought that Nixon won. But the overwhelming majority of Americans who watched it live on TV, they gave the victory to JFK in a landslide. By this time, TV news was the king of news. Millions of Americans would tune in every evening for the nightly newscast.
1: CBS News presents Douglas Edwards with up-to-the-minute developments from all parts of the world. Mr. Edwards.
0: Good evening, everybody. It saw a rise to legendary newsmen and women like Edward R. Murrow, who got a start in radio in the coverage of World War II. He was hugely impactful for how Americans viewed the war with his reporting out of London. He made the jump from CBS radio to CBS TV. In 1950, he hired a young radio journalist named Walter Cronkite. By 1962, Cronkite replaced the recently retired Douglas Edwards as CBS Evening News program anchor.
3: Direct from our newsroom
1: in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter
0: Cronkite and Russ Hodge. He held that chair for 19 years until 1981. He was called the most trusted man in America. Were we just ignorant citizens back then, being spood-fed everything that happened to us? Was the news all just hunky-dory, feel-good stories? No. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently
1: official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago.
0: There have always been terrible stories because there's always been humans. But ironically, it's the most important stories of tragedy and extremes of the human condition that people remember. That's why people remember Walter Cronkite breaking the news of JFK's death. Now, obviously, I can't say this exclusively. And obviously, there was exceptions to the rule. But it seemed to me that news was not about ratings and sensationalism back then. It was just about informing the electorate of the facts. And we could have a whole discussion about all the things that people did not report on and the ethics of that. Yes, there was extreme cases of racial injustice back then. People did not report on and the ethics of that. Yes, there was extreme cases of racial injustice back then. But the journalistic integrity of the people with what they were presenting had merit. It had value. It had truth. Truth that was not always easy. So let's go back to that fairness doctrine. Essentially, it had two basic elements. It required broadcasters to devote some of their airtime to discussing controversial matters of public interest. And to air contrasting views. So these stations were given a very wide latitude, if you will, as to provide this contrasting view. It could be done through news segments, public affairs shows, editorials, segments, all types of different things like that as to provide this contrasting view. It could be done through news segments, public affairs shows, editorials, segments, all types of different things like that. The doctrine did not, and this is key, require equal time, but just required that the contrasting viewpoints be at least presented. Quoting now from a 2009 article by Dan Fletcher in Time magazine, lawmakers became concerned that the three main television networks NBC, ABC, and CBS could misuse their broadcast license to set a biased public agenda. The Fairness Doctrine, which mandated that broadcast networks devote time to contrasting views of issues of public importance, was meant to level the playing field. Congress backed the policy in 1954, and by the 1970s, the FCC called the doctrine the single most important requirement of operation in the public interest, end quote. It comes with the Communications Act of 1934. It qualifies an attack as anything that goes against the honesty, character, integrity, or personal qualities of an identified person or group during broadcast or original cable TV programming while discussing controversial issues of public importance. End quote. Essentially, give somebody the right to defend themselves. If you are an American and you are saying something about another American, you had to give them equal opportunity. And the rules were very simple. Notify the identification of the cablecast, give the person or party a script, tape, or accurate summary of the attack, and offer a reasonable opportunity to respond over the same method. Failure to abide from the personal attack rule could have resulted in FCC sanctions or even refusing to renew a broadcaster's license. These laws were meant to uphold the integrity of the institutions, and they seem fair, don't they? Well, in 1987, the FCC under Reagan's administration and three Reagan-appointed commissioners of the FCC eliminated the Fairness Doctrine. Broadcast journalism has been without that rule since 1987. They even went as far as removing the policy from the Federal Register in August 2011. The Federal Register is essentially... Just a big, fancy diary that no one reads, summarizing literally everything that has happened in government that day. Yeah. You may even remember people trying to bring it back. There was a lot of talk about it. Reagan quashed it. Bush, this older one, quashed it. And then in 2005, the that attempt then didn't even make it out of committee. Even after the end of the closely related Fairness Doctrine... The personal attack rule continued to be enforced until the year 2000. The rule, however, quoting here, came to an end after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit Court ordered an immediate end. Since 1987, the lines of distinction between what is news and what is commentary have become blurred, and social media does not make it any easier. So we see a lot of the groundwork the seeds for the partisan split that we have so strong right now in 2020 America. We're letting news corporations share only one side of the commentary. So who orchestrated shutting down the Fairness Doctrine? The big companies, the mega media conglomerates. They lobbied hard in the 80s along the conservative movement to get rid of these restrictions, these attempts at their personal liberties and freedom, as they put it. In 1983, 90% of the U.S. media was controlled by 50 companies. In 2012, 90% was controlled by just six companies. I know there's a lot of bills and acts that i'm talking about but do you remember the personal attack rule the same communication act of 1934 set a framework for the industries of the american free press and the companies that broadcast it another huge oversimplification here is no monopolies we just can't have a handful of companies setting the narrative is what they thought back then by the mid 80s a lot of those companies were buying up smaller companies Big fish eating little fish. But at that point, there was still not really any mega whales. Enter the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Stay with me here. And this is quoting directly from the Congressional Report. The 1996 Act's stated objective was to open up markets to competition by removing regulatory barriers to entry. The conference report refers to the bills to provide for a pro-competitive, deregulatory national policy framework designed to accelerate rapidly private sector deployment of advanced information technologies, services to all Americans by opening all telecommunication markets to competition. End quote. (laughs) Translation. Time for media monopolies. There are still some rules that apply for TV stations, so an entity is permitted to own up to two television stations in the same designated market area. Interestingly enough, local radio has a lot more regulations. In a radio market with forty-five or more stations, an entity may own up to eight radio stations, no more than five of which may be on the same service (AM or FM). In a radio market with between thirty and forty-four radio stations, same an service, and on and on and on, the regulations go. Interestingly enough, included in there is the clause that no. Merger may happen between any two of the big four television networks, ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC. And then in 2017, the FCC eliminated its rule that had previously prohibited common ownership of a full power or a large broadcast station and a daily newspaper. And quoting the FCC's website here, If the station's contour defined separately by the type of station, completely encompass the newspaper, city of publication, at the station and the newspaper, were in the same relevant market. Basically, they don't want the people who own your newspapers to also own the TVs and the radio stations. At the same time, the commission also eliminated the radio-television cross-ownership rule, which had really restricted the common ownership of broadcast radio and television stations located in the same market. These two rules, the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership and the radio-television cross-ownership rules, were eliminated really in part of the growth in the number of variety of the sources of entertainment, news, and information, um, different players entering the marketplace essentially. Simplified again, big fish eating the little fish and becoming even bigger fish. It's the mass media enterprises such as television, radio, publishing, movies, theme parks, even the internet service providers. Uh, Essentially, if it's consumable amusement of some kind, entertainment, educational content, and of course 90% of the news, there's a chance it comes from the big six media conglomerates and just who are these shadowy figures these six companies ruling all of the media well it's actually six companies i can almost guarantee that you've heard of unless you've been living under a rock briefly AT&T Comcast Disney Viacom CBS Fox Corporation and Sony and now Each one of those has extreme layers of complexity and companies owning companies and subsidiaries. It's a tangled, twisted web of who owns who and who owns what. And the best way to do it is really just Google and find a timeline map and you can see how all of the mergers happened and buyouts and all the different things like that. I want to just briefly highlight what the first five really own and i guarantee you, you're going to hear many names that you have heard of before so starting with at and uh, well in addition to being a phone company a cellular service provider and internet provider it owns approximately 37 major corporations like these are the bigger corporations including time warner cable now spectrum everything with warner brothers on it movie studios theme parks cnn is their major news outlet hbo Time Magazine, Life Magazine, DirecTV, Cricket Wireless, TBS, Bleach Report, DC Comics, actually, Cartoon Network, Spectrum Internet, and interestingly enough, China Entertainment Television. Comcast, which was formerly owned by GE, but they sold it somehow. Comcast owns at least 45 major corporations, including Xfinity Cable, an internet provider, Anything with the three letters NBC in it, NBC Sports, NBC News, NBC Telemundo, anything with the word Universal Pictures, Universal in it, Universal Studios, Universal Theme Park, Uh, at least 26 television stations in the United States, cable networks, USA, CNBC, MSNBC, which, interestingly enough, MSNBC is actually a partnership with Microsoft. That's what the MS stands for. Um, NBCSN, and through a separate subsidiary, they actually own the Philadelphia Flyers, the NHL hockey team. Then there's Disney, your children's future boss. Disney owns at least 83 major corporations, including ABC Television Network, Cable Networks, ESPN, and there is really too many sub-channels to name here for this one, but they also own approximately 30 radio stations, music, video games, book publishing companies, production companies, and theme parks. Viacom. Despite having the name that sounds the most like a Bonds Villains organization, Viacom is probably one of the most tame ones with their content. They own at least 23 major corporations, including CBS, anything you see with CBS in front of it, and 30 news stations and television stations across the country. Last is Fox Corporation, owned by Rupert Murdoch. Fox owns at least eight other major corporations, including the Fox Broadcasting Company, Fox News Group, Fox News Channel, Fox Business Network, Fox News Radio, Fox News, Fox Talk, Fox Nation, Fox Sports, FS1, FS2, Fox Deportes, Big Ten Network, uh, 51% of Big Ten Network, excuse me, Fox Sports Radio, Fox Television Stations, Bento Box Entertainment, Tubi TV, it's a new one, and 28 local news stations across America. Now, almost all local news stations, but not exclusively, are affiliated with or at least owned by one of these conglomerates. These news stations have what they call a wire, which is essentially a 24 7 feed with incoming news. ABC, NBC, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, everyone, they all have stories that their writers at their national branch. And editors pick out and put together for what they call a pack. The local news stations often have no choice but to air sometimes verbatim content pushed down on them. Uh, And a lot of times they are relevant stories that are national news stories that they can play. It includes like clips, audio, like all types of interviews, all types of good content. Then usually at the end you have your local interest pieces, you know, The panda at the local zoo just had a baby. Different things like that. But the narrative, the agenda, is actually typically set from the top down. Each subsidiary communicating the agenda of the mega media conglomerate above them. So today what can happen when these giant corporations, businesses, are interacting with these giant media conglomerates? What is essentially guerrilla marketing, native advertising, oftentimes, this is a specific example, commercials disguised as journalism. Millions of Americans staying
2: at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions of Americans staying at home are relying on Amazon. Millions
0: of Americans staying at
3: home are
2: relying
0: on Amazon. Amazon. Do you remember that tweet that sparked this in the
3: beginning? Amazon has transformed its operations in response to COVID-19 to protect employees and keep packages flowing. Amazon has transformed its operations in response to COVID-19 to protect employees and keep packages flowing. The
2: company is keeping its employees safe and healthy while still delivering those packages to your doorstep.
0: The clip you just heard is courtesy of Courier Newsroom. It's a clip cutting back and forth between what's counted to be 11 news stations that are almost word for word reading the same script.
2: Dollars on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. It has spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during.
0: In the background of the video, we see transitions between news anchors and showing B-roll footage, the same footage of Amazon warehouses and smiling, happy faces. The anchors are blatantly reading a script written by Amazon's PR, who's then paid journalists to do a story,
3: which is really just a commercial, posing as news. Every single one of Amazon's workforce of nearly a million people has played a critical role in making these changes happen. I hope
1: that they feel that passion that we have for safety.
3: So they can stay safe and healthy while you do too.
0: Please hear the air quotes here. News story aired several days before Amazon's May 27th shareholder meeting quoting directly from courier newsroom here amazon is taking proactive action ahead of the annual shareholders meeting at which investors plan on demanding the company address worker safety issues of under eight warehouse employees that have died of covid-19 by pushing a propaganda package to local news outlets that promote the corporation's health and safety efforts that's exactly what it is it's propaganda amazon slashed its hazard pay for its warehouse workers now, it must really be said that there are still many TV journalists and professionals that scoff at the very idea of running Amazon-provided content as news, notably an anchor at Oklahoma City News who actually tweeted the incident and his shock to it to help blow the story on it. There are at least 11 local stations that I found across the country running some form of the package on their news broadcast. Again, quoting Courier here, Amazon's response was that the pre-edited package, which even included the graphics and B-roll footage, was a, end quote, in-depth look at the company's response to COVID, end quote. So a timeline review. The Fairness Doctrine basically showed both sides of the argument, repealed in 1987. 1996 Telecommunications Act deregulating the industry, letting companies buy little companies and get bigger. The personal attack rule basically gives someone a chance to defend themselves. Eliminated in 2000 after a DC court ordered its immediate end. And finally, the last nail in the coffin, the elimination of the broadcast station cross-ownership rules in 2017. What does this all culminate into? Americans don't trust the media. A 2012 Gallup poll found that Americans' distrust in the mass media had hit a new high with 60% saying they had little to no trust in the mass media to report the news fully, accurately, and fairly. And there is no one institution to blame. We are all culprit. The government, the companies, the mega-conglomerates, even us. I mean, it essentially works like this. News channels are run by companies. Companies survive by making a profit. Profits are made by gaining viewers for ad revenue. Viewers are gained by picking biases and publishing stories so that it just echoes to people within that bias, what they wanna hear. The result is a new distrust in our news agencies because now people can go and see vastly different takes on what should be the same story. You can't trust the news? Well, society reacts, whether it's a conscious or unconscious decision. There is always a reaction. It's inevitable. It's the momentum of a pendulum swinging. Now everything is polarized. Everything is drawn in the light of political views. Here, I'm speaking in general terms. Obviously, there are still journalistic entities out there with integrity in their news. And obviously, there's institutions that play it fast and loose with their ethic. The constant in all of this is our human nature. You see, both sides took aim, and they took aim at the credibility of the truth. You do not have to be accountable to the truth and to its consequences when you challenge the credibility of who is telling you. This is not a recent invention by our current president. The roots of this are 50 years old in the news and are ever-present in our humanity. Do You don't like how this issue fits into your narrative? Change the channel. Change the facts. Now we have alternative facts. Fake news. Objective reality is facts don't care about your feelings. They are impartial. They just are. That's why when you get caught in a blatant lie, Rather than face the consequence of the lie, claim it never happened. You never said that. What does it mean for us when taking sides is less about supporting your team and your side and more a statement of opposition to the other side's values? It's my opinion here, some commentary, that more people disliked Hillary Clinton than liked Donald Trump. That's why he's our president. You want to know what really happened? The only way you can find out is get to the bottom of it yourself. But the problem is, no one person can get to the bottom of everything themselves. We have to rely on experts. Insert YouTube. Think of the traditional news as a shotgun. It was really more spray and pray. Yeah, you might enter into millions of Americans' homes, but you also are probably playing in an empty hotel bar for no one to see. Think of the internet and YouTube as a rifle, focusing in on a specific target, focusing in with specific information and specific ads. And that target? You. So let's chat about YouTube. YouTube is a fantastic tool and I use it all the time. It is extremely useful for so many things, but like any tool, sometimes the bigger and more useful also means the more dangerous when abused. A hammer that builds a house can also be used to destroy a house. A nail gun is a technology that makes it way more effective than hammering in each nail by hand, but has anyone that has shot a spike through their foot can tell you, It is a lot more dangerous than a hammer. But I'm positive that anybody that shot a spike through their foot could probably tell you it is a lot more dangerous than a hammer. Tools are useful. Tools are dangerous when they're misused. It's all about how you use them. So YouTube has 1.8 billion. That's billion with a B users every month and those are just the ones who are logged in. It is easily Google's most profitable and most used service, even surpassing Gmail. Which I guess is not that huge of a surprise. Anyway, its goal is to overcome Facebook's two billion users. In 2019, YouTube's net was 3.8 billion dollars. Projection for 2020 is over four their projection in 2022 is over $6 billion, and I think they're gonna reach it. These statistics are relevant as of 2019, but they had 300 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. Over 5 billion videos are watched on YouTube every single day. YouTube gets 30 million visitors per day. In an average month, 8 out of 10 18 to 49-year-olds watch YouTube. By 2025, half of the viewers under 32 will not subscribe to a pay TV service. Six out of 10 people prefer online video platforms to live TV. The total number of hours of video watched on YouTube each month is 3.25 billion. There is over 10,000 YouTube videos that generated over 1 billion views. 80% of YouTube's views are from outside of the United States. For the key 18 to 49-year-old demographic, YouTube has more viewers than any cable news network. YouTube's watch time is up 60% year over year, the fastest growth in two years. You can navigate YouTube in a total of 76 When YouTube launched, it was the same humans that we've always had, but it was a different internet. It was launched in 2005, and it was revolutionary from the beginning. But the true vision for its potential was really seen by Google when they bought it for $1.65 billion in October 2006. But it had a problem. You see, for years, YouTube was kind of like a online catalog for one video that you watched and left. Often it was something that got emailed around. Uh, it was bloopers, videos, things like that. Something like Charlie bit my finger. You watched it and exited promptly. Done. So Google, being a company that likes to make money, and that's something companies want to do, had to find a way to make money on YouTube. There was a lot of talk about whether they should charge the creators to have an account or maybe charge the viewers. Surely it's big enough people will pay to watch YouTube, right? Google bet on itself. You see, they knew their biggest source of revenue would no doubt come from ads. Now, you probably remember a time on YouTube where there was barely any ads, if any at all. Google first started to introduce them on their most popular videos and then gradually increased them more and more and more. Now, every single video, it seems like, that has more than a 1,000 views will probably have an ad. Smaller videos typically play for free. Google was able to do this because they had such a huge market share. And it's simple. More watch time. Equals more ad time, equals more revenue. According to former employees, YouTube set a goal for themselves. In 2012, they set the goal they wanted to get 1 billion hours of watch time in a single day. They want to achieve this goal by 2014. So every decision that the executives made was made in light of their goal. Everything was working towards that 1 billion hour watch time. And early on, their groundbreaking move was the Recommended Videos bar. It's that box of thumbnails that's on the right or left of your video recommending videos like the one you're watching. It was a gold mine. In fact, it still is. In 2019, 70% of new video views come from the Recommendation bar. Along with that was the autoplay feature. It's that thing that times down after you finish watching your video, like 15 seconds till the next one starts. Why give someone a choice? Let's just start playing the video. And the algorithm here is the key to the whole thing. Algorithms exactly like what Netflix uses or Spotify to curate items or videos in this case, exactly personalized for the viewer, something TV could never accomplish. Today, every tech company worth their salt has an algorithm that they use to track you meticulously online and sell you more ads. It's like an ice cream company learning exactly the right combination of custom flavors that you love so much and all it makes you want to do is eat more ice cream. The goal is to get you to have more and more watch time. So that's why in spring 2019, when my wife got pregnant for the first time, she started receiving ads and pretty soon I started receiving ads for specific newborn products, baby products, parenting issues, parenting magazines, all types of things that we saw across all the platforms, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, we saw them everywhere. And this was a month before we told any of our family or friends that we were even pregnant. These huge, impersonal corporations knew a very, very personal fact, a tidbit of news about us, before the people closest to us did. So in 2012, when YouTube has set this goal of 1 billion hours of watch time, their custom algorithm was going to take them there. And the way it worked at that time, it was based upon popularity. So for example, if you watched a video about how to start a fire with two sticks that has 4,500 views, from there, the recommendation goes upward to broader and broader popular videos. So it might recommend a camping survival video with 15,000 views. And from there, it might recommend a review of a backpack that has 45,000 views. It was based on the number of views And YouTube saying, okay, if it has a lot of views, it must be more popular and more specific for you. It was going up out of the rabbit hole. It was a creek flowing into a stream, flowing into a river, all leading towards the ocean. And that's where they had their problem. In their offices in YouTube, they had a problem they called the Gangnam Style Problem. Now, if you don't know what this song, Gangnam Style, is, you probably don't remember 2012 It was a half-Korean, half-English hit song from Psy that literally almost took over the internet, or at least YouTube. It was catchy. The rhythm is simple, repetitive. It was one of the first examples of the viral sensation. And I mean viral, like the internet, not like viral, like COVID. In six months, it had shattered records and became the most watched video around the world on YouTube. One billion views. As of May 2020, this 2012 video ranks 7th all-time, having earned 3.6 billion views. So the problem went like this. It was a joke that if you were to get a bunch of laptops and all open them up to a random video on YouTube with barely any views, and you press play, and you enable the autoplay function, after a while, every single video will be playing Gangnam Style. So YouTube realized that you're not going to stick around and watch a video that you've already seen. They wanted people to go down the rabbit hole because down the rabbit hole equals more and more watch time, equals more and more ads, equals more and more revenue. If you visited the site regularly, you probably noticed the jump to these longer videos. It used to be an average video was four minutes long and it jumped to about 15 minutes long in that time. It no longer valued videos of quality it valued videos of length the content was not as important in 2014 YouTube hit their goal of 1 billion hours of watch time a day in fact they blew it out of the water and they continued to grow by 2015 this algorithm shift was really starting to show results problem was it wasn't the results that YouTube maybe originally had wanted It was more a consequence or a byproduct of their long-term goal. Who gets highlighted in this? The fringe of society, the vocal minority. It makes an echo chamber for people to hop into. It is literally a giant factor for the growth of so many things.
1: Refuse to be another vegetable. Pseudoscience garbage will to me be unacceptable. Anyone with eyes to see don't have to be susceptible. Dispose of your globe in the nearest waste receptacle. There is no curvature to this earth, there is no motion to this earth. If you just accept the globe model with no understanding of the flat and no clear evidence
0: for the ball earth, do you see the problem there? Flat earthers are back. So many things like the recent rise of the flat earthers. And while it is dangerous to spread a belief that the earth is flat and the government for, well, you know, I don't even know why, for some reason, is hiding that fact from you. And two, that it would change any bit of your earth reality, for whatever reason, is dangerous and misinformative, especially for the younger generation that's using YouTube. It gets a lot darker than that. suddenly the internet allows people to have a community, to meet together, to find each other, to echo their own opinions back and forth. And you see both sides take up arms. The extremes of both sides get pushed. Conspiracy theories get sunshine. It can grow faster than ever before. We see QAnon, Deep State, Russian collusion, the alt-right, neo-Nazis, the KKK, people spewing commentary of hate, racism, sexism, bigotry, pushing a nasty, ugly ideology.
2: One people, one nation, and immigration.
0: You see the rise of the alt-left Antifa. Racial unrest in America seems to be pushed to a boiling point even then. In 2014, you see Ferguson, Missouri. 2015, the Baltimore riots. And what's happening is it radicalizes both sides. It takes things that should be meant for good, for social change in America that America needs, like the Black Lives Movement. It takes it and it highlights the worst side of rioting and unrest and cruelty that can happen in a protest. Just look right now what is happening to America.
2: Thank you. President Trump today called George Floyd's death a, quote, grave tragedy. At the same time, he issued new warnings for authorities to crack down on protesters.
0: And protests are all across America, with riots breaking out at the protests, destroying property and lives and things of value. Even restoring law and order becomes a politicized decision. And I think we can all be on the same page here that what happened in Minnesota to George Floyd was atrocious, was a crime, and the cop should face the penalty. But I think we can all agree that looting and rioting does no benefit to society, yet it's always drawn in the light of politics. And ask yourself, where are you hearing about this? Are you getting it from news or are you hearing it from news feeds? Because there's a big difference. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of these places, no journalists required. Everyone can report the news. But the irony is, if everyone couldn't report the news, we would never hear of George Floyd. Abuse of power by an authority is nothing new, just as our sin nature is nothing new. People have always abused other people. We have not advanced beyond it as a society because we have not advanced beyond sin as a society the difference is now we can capture a video of the nine minutes someone stood on george floyd's neck we can capture these atrocities and we can report them maybe you heard the reporting and the conspiracy theories that all of the rioters are instigators paid by george soros and that in minnesota the first time the riots happened none of the people there were actually from the state of Minnesota.
3: We didn't make an enormous number of arrests, but every single person we arrested last night, I'm told, was from out of state.
0: That clip is from a news conference directly after the May 29th riots by independent St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter.
3: What we are seeing right now is a group of people who are not from here.
0: Thoughts were also echoed by Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, who said the protesters are coming in largely from outside the city, from outside the region, to prey on everything we have built over the last several decades, end quote. Here is the mayor, Melvin Carter, talking more about his connection to the movement.
3: As I talk to my friends uh, who have been in this movement for a very long time, who wake up in this movement every day, and I ask them, what they're seeing, what they're feeling, what they're hearing, to a person, I hear them say, we don't know these folks. We don't know these folks who are agitating. We don't know these folks who are inciting violence. We don't know these folks who are first in to break a window.
0: It's amazing how quickly these rioters organize to move into a region being flown in and bust in to instigate riots. The local government is telling us that these people are from out of state. Obviously there's something bigger at play here, right? Maybe you heard this online somewhere. You probably saw some sort of news report. Maybe you saw it on Twitter, just a clip of him saying, these are outsiders. Does that sound familiar? Does that nationalist rhetoric sound familiar? Is this one side trying to change the news cycle, trying to change the narrative? I will say it's convenient for the citizens to not be accountable for their actions of their rioting and looting when it was obviously Soros-funded outside instigators. But here's the important part. That's not true. It's false. According to reporting by Theo Keith at Minneapolis Fox 9, 84% of those arrested had local addresses. According to Brandon Stahl of the city's KARE 11, reporting that 86% of those arrested Friday night and Saturday morning were local. At first, the state officials speculated that it was because people who arrested gave false addresses. Maybe Melvin Carter didn't know the people in the movement as well as he thought. Because Carter later had to walk back his comments saying he learned that the arrest data was inaccurate. But he was sure to clarify that he was not the only official in the state who blamed the violence on outsiders. Well, I guess we'll let you off the hook since you weren't the only one. You know, kind of like a rioter, So let me ask you, which story did you hear? Did you hear the mayor claiming that everyone's from outside? Did you also hear the next day or two when it was redacted and he came out and actually said he was incorrect? Perhaps you even experienced someone doubling down and saying, no, all of those other news reports saying that 85 to 86% of the people were local were false, it's fake news. It's an even deeper conspiracy theory. There shouldn't be a system that pits commentary versus news. As an example of the commentary my wife showed me the other day on the phone, a lifestyle blog or a cookbook blog or some kind that you know, typically refrains from political statements, but just had to post about how all lives matter. And the chances are you've seen more posts on your timeline and your news feed of people making commentary on news and you have of actual news. This blogger said all lives matter and and the comments were roasting her. Because of how we consume the news is why you see people posting political statements on Facebook and Instagram taking sides on the whole thing. Some sides saying black lives matter, other sides saying all lives matter. But what we have to understand is the black lives Matter movement is not denying the value of all the other lives. You don't go to a house that's on fire and stop the firemen and say, hey, don't all houses matter here? Are you saying my house isn't valuable? Well, the one house is getting burned down. The fact is that the recipients of police brutality in America is more a problem of the lower socioeconomic class amongst us. And we as Americans have to be prepared to acknowledge that that class is disproportionately people of color. America is paying for its history of systemic racism. And we have come a long way as a country in correcting the institutional racism, which has gotten a lot better. But we still as a country have a lot of healing to do. I don't really want to go further into that issue on this podcast platform, but I hope you realize that that last little bit there with the thoughts on the rioting and racism in America is commentary, which is just my opinion. So we're coming to a close here shortly, but before we do go ahead and get some tinfoil and fashion it into a hat because let's talk about conspiracy theories. What really happened? What's really going on? Let's pull the curtain back, sheeple. The truth is out there. You just have to know where to look. It's on the internet. Where to find these hidden figures? these ancient mysteries, these long forgotten truths. Who are they? What are they? Illuminati, Freemasons, Bigfoot, Flat Earth, Area 51, UFOs, One World War, MK Ultra, Lizard People, Alex Jones, Gay Frogs, Chemtrails, Michael Jordan playing baseball to avoid a gambling suspension, Denver Airport, New Coke, 911 5G, JFK, the CIA, and the KKK. Wake up. And the weird thing is, I think most people know that most of those are completely and utterly bogus, and some of them might even have roots in truth. <clears throat> Michael Jordan. But come on, we have to understand that the plausibility of a conspiracy theory is directly tied to its scalability. I cannot deny the existence of actual conspiracies. I'm just asking us to be rational and look at it with plausibility. Essentially, the bigger and more crazy, and more outlandish, the less likely it is going to happen. The more people involved, the lower the probability is. And I will be the first to admit that I indulge in a good, gratifying conspiracy theory, because it hits kind of in the same place that good gossip hits. Even though I know The likelihood is such a small chance and that it's false. There's something compelling about hearing them. And it's kind of contagious. And you can really slip down the rabbit hole. Quoting directly now from Drew Johnson in the November 22, 2019 article in Christianity Today. He entitled his article, Jesus Cares About Your Conspiracy Theory. Conspiracy theories have been around as long as humans have been reasoning, for they are seemingly spreading faster as postmodernism has lapsed into what some philosophers now call supermodernism. Supermodernism is a result of inundation. It's signaled by folks who give up on questions about what is true and who has the right to tell the correct master narrative. Because of the proliferation of data and sources, supermoderns only worry about who they can trust to guide them through their daily onslaught of information. Conspiracy thinking injects itself at this exact point. Who will guide me? The conspiracy theorists answer? I will. I, the one who knows, will peel back the corner of this deep state or deep science tarp and reveal to you all its secret inner workings You are not one of the sheeple. You are an independent thinker who can see it for yourself. That is the tawdry promise of conspiracy. I would really encourage you to read the rest of that article and I will have links and sources at the end below. YouTube can take a fledgling conspiracy theory fan and pull them down into a deep, dark place. They can make connections, drawing lines between things that shouldn't be connected. Origins of things, words, symbols, things that tell you when you hear them, you know what, that makes sense. I've always known that I've just never articulated that thought. Eventually, the rabbit hole will spit them out as your uncle at Thanksgiving who wants to tell you the real story. No, 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 you don't understand the real, real story. We have a real problem with anti-intellectualism. That's a term coined by Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Hofstadter in 1964. It's the idea of hostility towards and mistrust of intellect, intellectuals, intellectual pursuits. And it's usually expressed in the derision of education, philosophy, literature, art, and science as impractical and contemptible. You see, when my car is making a funny noise and breaks down, I call a mechanic because they've had training and I value their expertise about cars. I don't know a lot about cars. I could probably Google it, but I know that I don't have the technical knowledge and expertise that comes from spending lots of time learning about it. Quoting now Isaac Asimov in a column in Newsweek on January 21st, 1980, there is a cult of ignorance... In the United States, and there always has been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread, winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge." End quote. My ignorance is just as good as your knowledge, That's why when a doctor of infectious diseases and epidemiologist tells you that you should take actionable steps to curb the spread of disease, people lose their mind. And what is the first thing that they go after? They question their credibility. They question their motives. They try to tie red conspiracy strings all around the world to shadow elite figures of the one world government that are making you put out their agenda. <clears throat> They're taking away your freedoms by telling you to wear a mask or telling you to stay home. Now, obviously, I know it's a far more nuanced situation. But it's hard to argue with people wanting to value human lives like they should, like we want them to. And I know the damage to our economy and the damage to the individual people and their well-being and the low-income people of America and around the world it's going to be extremely hard to quantify and is extremely hard to swallow. I realize the amount of lives that are indirectly affected by the shutdown and the closures are astronomical. But I think we also have to respect those who are making a decision as an authority figure because the choices we think we would make as a small business owner for 10 people would suddenly look and feel a lot different if we were a governor and making choices for 11 million people. The government is a system designed and built for gridlock that is part of the framework of our founding fathers that designed it that way so there wouldn't be one absolute ruler. And I think whether we agree with the choices or not, we have to understand and respect the position that they're being made from. Because more often, and not, it's not some far overreaching conspiracy theory that has infiltrated the deepest ranks of government. No, more often than not, it's composed of people, just average people, who are doing the best they know how. I heard someone say once that when it comes to government, you should never assume malfeasance while stupidity is an option. Friends, let's not be mistaken. Having to shelter in place or wear a mask when you go outside is not risking your democracy. Not valuing and clinging to absolute truth is threatening your democracy. And just because things are not the way they should be doesn't mean you should stop wanting things to be the way they they should be. It's okay to want truth. You should want to want truth. The it's all relevant worldview that our culture has is nothing new that came with TV or the internet. It's a problem that has always been there, but it's just expressed differently than before. And It's not hard to predict that in a world without ultimate truth, we would have this. Quoting an article now, Many religious systems provide moral codes or standards for their followers, yet the Bible presents a unique look at truth. In the New Testament, Jesus was asked, What is truth? by Pilate in John 18.38. The very man who approved the death of Jesus. When Pilate asked the question, he was looking into the eyes of the one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. God is perfect, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what he says is true. That includes the scriptures that are called God-breathed or inspired by God. And commentary on current events and past events are important. We read commentaries on the Bible. But if you only read the commentaries and you stop reading the source material, the Bible, then it starts to be a problem. You need the truth first. Now, I can't tell you that you shouldn't ever get your news. Now, I cannot tell you that you shouldn't ever get your news from a big corporation or from a biased company. I'm not telling you you can't have commentary on things. And I won't tell you where I get my news. But I'm just asking that you look at the news when it comes through and be aware of biases. Be self-aware of your own bias and your own tendencies and bring it to bear with Christian worldviews in light of the Bible. And to be clear, I'm not denying spiritual warfare. I'm not denying that Satan has an agenda and that he is moving in the world and that he is powerful and that he's bringing people to use and to advance his agenda. You don't need to suddenly wake up and see what's really going on. What we need is to cling desperately to Jesus. You need to latch onto the truth of God's word and hold firm. You need to hold firm to the truth of Jesus' free gift of salvation, the truth of his bodily resurrection, the truth of the Holy Spirit, the truth of God's ultimate victory over Satan and the grave. I want to end this podcast with encouragement from the ultimate truth. And thank you if you stuck with me for this long. This is the first 17 verses of John 17 in the ESV. And I just ask that you pay special attention to the word truth. in truth now if you listen to this podcast and you enjoyed it i would really love to hear from you if you listen to this podcast and didn't enjoy it, well, I still would like to hear from you. So feel free to reach out on social media, on any of the pages where you see this. Comments would be appreciated. Thank you for going with me on this. It was a episode that is unlike any other episode I want to do. I'm still trying to figure out what direction I really want to go with this podcast. It's a platform that's long form and... I've never really had an opportunity to just talk for this long or to work on something for this long that I'm producing that hopefully can be vulnerable and start a conversation. So sincerely, thank you for listening.